Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments in North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. As I'm sure many of you are, I've been glued to the news cycle lately, alternating horror at the unceasing onslaught of terrible things happening with relief and hope at the size and speed of mass organizing in response. Mass organizing, activism, is and has long been the key to establishing and maintaining human rights, whether through Antifa shutting down Milo, Resistance at Standing Rock, the Women's March, Black Lives Matter, Idle No More, Occupy Wall Street, Act Up, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, the Reproductive Justice Movement, the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, the March on Washington, Freedom Riders, Suffragettes, and so on into history. No mass organizing movement is perfect, but each builds on work from the others. Each movement makes others possible, and so even in their flaws, we must acknowledge those that came before. As Angela Davis reminds us with the title of her new book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. When we think about trans history and activism, nearly all of our recent attention has been drawn to Stonewall and to the incredible New York-based group Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, whose founders, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, I discussed in a previous episode and intend to cover again later this year. However, this is not where the history of trans collective organizing began. In this week's episode, we'll take a look at an earlier trans activist group based in San Francisco's Tenderloin District, which is just this week being designated a transcultural district for its rich history and contributions to the lives of trans people in North America. Though short-lived, this group may be the earliest documented transsexual activist group in North America. The seeds of change they planted continue to grow to this day. So join us for the story of COG, perhaps the first known transsexual activist group in North America. America were a time of great social upheaval, just like right now. 
with civil rights, women's liberation, and the early homophile activism fighting their way onto the national stage alongside the rise of an anti-war youth counterculture with an interest in sex, psychedelics, and rock and roll. San Francisco became the epicenter of the counterculture, as well as home to many intersecting political and religious organizations fighting for liberty. Long before the massive gentrification currently underway in San Francisco, thanks to the incoming white tech gentry, the 1960s also saw a San Francisco undergoing rapid and dramatic urban change. Drag queens and other trans people occupied a small area of cheap housing in the Tenderloin District, a neighborhood long associated with sex work and other forms of vice, where early trans people, drag queens, and other queer people could live openly with relative ease. Still, even within the permissive Tenderloin District, San Francisco police arbitrarily arrested and assaulted drag queens and other trans people for not dressing in the clothing of their assigned sex. Thanks to a history of municipal anti-cross-dressing laws that stretch back to the 19th century. The police acted with impunity because there was no organized community force to resist them, despite a 1962 California State Supreme Court ruling that struck down anti-cross-dressing laws. By 1966, development in San Francisco also began to have an impact on the Queens. Susan Stryker touches on this in her brilliant documentary, Screaming Queens. Here's a clip. Urban planners and developers intent on remaking the city tore down nearby neighborhoods where black and working class people lived, turning the tenderloin into the last pocket of affordable housing in the central city. New people moving in squeezed the queens out of the neighborhood's cheapest rooms, leaving them literally no place else to go. At the same time as Stryker discusses, Harry Benjamin published his famous book, The Transsexual Phenomenon, which birthed, as Stryker puts it, the sudden availability of a transsexual identity for the drag queens of the Tenderloin. The transsexual phenomenon may be difficult to take for current trans sensibilities, essentially originating what we now call the medical model of transsexuality. But at the time, this was a revolutionary step toward the acknowledgement of the rights and dignity of trans people. Dignity, however, that is somewhat complicated by the several pages of nude photos at the back of the book. One of the photos is shown side by side with a statue of the Greek god Hermaphrodite, the trans woman's body posed in the same position. This book mostly ignores the existence of trans men, whom, as longtime listeners will remember, were the first trans people to experiment with hormones in the late 1930s. The radical milieu of 1960s San Francisco mixed with a newly emboldened transsexual identity under pressure from a gentrification-based housing crisis and continued police repression 
created a powder keg that was about to blow. And in August 1966, it did. That summer, trans sex workers, street queens, and male hustlers, some of whom were members of early gay youth organization Vanguard, rioted against police at Compton's cafeteria. I won't go into all of the details, as this event deserves its own episode, but you can find out more in the documentary Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria, a personal favorite of mine. I'll summarize what happened with a quote from drag queen Sandy Green, who wrote, Hell, honey, I remember standing toe-to-toe and slugging it out with the cops back in 66 in front of Compton's at Turk and Taylor. Those dizzy fags back in New York think that Christopher Street was something. Honey, let me tell you, they should have seen Turk Street 66. Street queens fought back against the police, and in the long run, they won. And this is where our story picks up. Picture it, if you will. 1967, a year After the Compton's Cafeteria riot, two years before Stonewall, the summer of love. The youth counterculture, with its relatively liberal views on sex, race relations, drugs, politics, and yes, even homosexuality, descended upon San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. Some 100,000 hippies flocked to the city to tune in, turn on, and drop out. Meanwhile, trans people are fighting for access to health care. A group of trans women, led by Wendy Kohler, began working with Dr. Joel Fort at the San Francisco Public Health Department, which started a center for special problems who wanted to tackle the transsexual phenomenon. Like many gender identity clinics emerging at this time, largely from the silent funding of FTM millionaire Reed Erickson, the doctors willing to work with trans patients quickly assumed gatekeeping roles. They saw their job as determining exactly who counted as a transsexual, and a profile quickly became apparent. The ideal transsexual was a white, male-to-female, of middle-class background and homosexual orientation who did not derive sexual gratification from dressing as a woman, but felt compelled to live as a woman in society and sought access to both hormones and sex reassignment surgery. This is the born-in-the-wrong-body or binary narrative that continues to dominate media coverage of trans people and forms the backbone of the long-standing trans memoir genre. While many trans people fit this profile, many more did not. The street queens of the Tenderloin, in particular, were often excluded either because they worked as sex workers or because they told more ambivalent narratives about their genders that didn't provide the easy born-in-the-wrong-body story doctors wanted to hear. It should come as no surprise that many of these street queens were also women of color, a factor that surely played a role in the difficulties they experienced accessing healthcare at the time. 
And despite seed money from Reed Erickson feeding many of these gender identity clinics, trans men also had a particularly difficult time getting doctors to accept the validity of their genders. Following the riot at Compton's, Louise Ergestras, a trans woman sex worker, had approached Elliot Blackstone, the SFPD's gay and lesbian liaison officer. According to legend, she sashayed into his office and slammed down a copy of Benjamin's The Transsexual Phenomenon onto his desk and, according to Stryker, demanded that he do something for her people. She explained that trans women in the Tenderloin engaged in sex work because they had no other options. Barred from working other jobs by transphobia and the SFPD's anti-cross-dressing arrests. Blackstone was open to her suggestions and began working to change the treatment of transsexuals by the SFPD. Blackstone describes this initial encounter himself years later, quote, One day, this tall, football-player-type female came in to see me. I said, oh, you're a transvestite. She said, no, I'm a transsexual. And I said, well, pardon my ignorance. What in the hell is a transsexual? That was the beginning. That was a gal by the name of Louise Ergestras. She explained to me about what a transsexual was as opposed to a transvestite, and she got me a book about it by Dr. Harry Benjamin, who later became a very good friend of mine. Louise's work with Blackstone would dovetail with the work of the Center for Special Problems, who began issuing transsexual ID cards that trans women could use to escape arrest by police for cross-dressing. The ID cards essentially said that this person is under the care of a doctor, don't arrest her. In the fall of 1967, a group of trans people met at the Glide Memorial Methodist Church in the Tenderloin. The Glide Memorial Church was a hotbed of radical activism at the time. Opening in 1930, the church swung towards the radical counterculture in the 1960s, when in 1963, leadership was taken over by Reverend Cecil Williams, who formed the Council on Religion and the Homosexual one of the first faith-based pro-gay groups in North America. Reverend Williams also gave space to Vanguard, the gay youth activist group whose publications and members helped spark the riot at Compton's cafeteria. And now, in 1967, they gave space for another first, the first transsexual peer support group on the continent. COG stood for, according to various accounts, either change our genders or conversion our goal, but quickly changed to change our goal. Its membership was made up primarily of white trans women sex workers who, according to a sneering 1969 medical journal article that I found, lived, quote, in hand-to-mouth poverty, several hustling for enough money to pay this week's rent, and most of the members are unable to come forth with the $25 currently required by the Legal Aid Society to apply for changing their name to conform to their desired gender. The group had a sole trans man member, Robert Martin, whose photo, which you can find in Joanne Meyerowitz's How Sex Changed, 
makes me say, Daddy. The apparent leader of the group seems to have been Wendy Kohler, whom I mentioned earlier in relation to the Center for Special Problems. Another key member of the group was trans sex worker Louise Ergestras. According to the sneering article by doctors George Kirkham and Edward Segarin, COG had at its peak 17 core members. COG had one overarching goal, getting sexual reassignment surgery and related healthcare available on a nationwide basis. What members of COG wanted to do was to spawn affinity groups across the country to lobby for this in their respective cities. In addition to this political goal, the group functioned as a peer support group, giving tenderloin transsexuals a place outside of bars and sex work venues to exchange tips and tricks of passing, as well as crucial information on where to find doctors and even where to shop. COG also published a newsletter to distribute this information, archival copies of which still exist today. COG members were keenly aware of the new availability of surgery at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, as well as options for surgery in Casablanca with Dr. Georges Beru and in Mexico. The surgery at the time cost anywhere from $3,000 to $6,000, and group members attempted to help each other save up the necessary funds. However, as discussed already and hammered on over and over by the Medical Journal article, the members were living in extreme poverty and none were able to save up the money. COG had no initial funding. However, thanks to Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty and the efforts of early homophile activists working through the Central City Citizens' Council, the Tenderloin had been designated a target for poverty reduction funds, which gave rise to a series of social service programs. COG made connections with these programs, in particular with the Center for Special Problems, which I mentioned earlier, and the Central City Economic Opportunity Council. The Central City Economic Opportunity Council helped print COG's newsletter and also provided training and some jobs for MTF members of COG. The job training was offered through the Neighborhood Youth Corps and focused on clerical skills. COG, through the connection of Louise, worked most closely with Elliot Blackstone to end police harassment of transsexuals. Blackstone attended COG meetings and, according to his own account, served as an informal counselor to COG's membership. Blackstone takes credit, in fact, for the name of the organization, which he puts as Conversion, Our Goal. COG met twice weekly at the Glide Memorial Church and appeared on both television and radio, as well as hosting workshops with the goal of educating the public about transsexual rights. COG's activities were directly inspired by the civil rights movement. This is evident in the language they used to describe their activities. Meyerowitz quotes this telling line from an unsigned editorial in one of COG's newsletters. Quote, 
Now as never before, the individual is coming to terms with the mass. Members of minority groups are being accepted as people first with perhaps a different way of life. According to Meyerowitz, the editorial lashed out at police harassment and ended by saying, just give us a chance to earn a decent living and a clean place to live. Despite their lofty goals, COG quickly fell apart, which Meyerowitz attributes to their lack of funding and the transience of their members. There also appears to have been some sort of power struggle within the group. According to the transphobic medical journal article by Kirkham and Sagarin from 1969, quote, COG is constantly plagued with incessant bickering between individual members, while factionalism lies incongruously beneath the surface of meetings conducted within the decorous context of parliamentary rules of order. That there are periodic virulent eruptions of open discord marked by shouting irate resignations from office and angry exits from the meeting room should not be surprising. There is manifested a combination of neurotic interaction and frustration, the latter because the basic problems of the individual members cannot be met and because the group can only show small success in its overwhelming goals. All this leads to skullduggery, competitiveness, fission, fed by a paranoia that seems both to inhere in the condition and to be aggravated by the very real persecution that the individuals encounter in life. Now, if you set aside the like really degrading tone that the medical journal article authors are using, um, this isn't surprising. If you have been in trans organizing ever, you have seen the same thing happen. Uh, it's kind of sad to think that it's been happening since 1967 to today, but here we are. <laughs> Anyways, Cog's ostensible leaders, Wendy and Louise, went in two different directions. In 1968, Louise attempted to form her own group with her cis husband, Jerry Durkin, called the California Advancement for Transsexual Society, or CATS, with the purpose of being more activist-bent. However, despite continuing to work with Blackstone, the group never materialized beyond a handful of members. Trans woman Suzanne Cook recalls meeting Louise and Jerry in 1969. She describes Louise extremely unflatteringly as, quote, this hulking giant with flaming red hair and a ship's propeller tattooed on her massive forearm, perhaps suggesting that Louise had at one point been in the Navy, but that's pure speculation. According to Suzanne, Louise asked for money in exchange for information on where to find support groups and then went off to the corner market to buy wine with it. While she was out of the room, Jerry coerced Suzanne into giving him a blowjob in exchange for information on where a, quote, real support group was. Cats, with these sleazy and controlling tactics, didn't last long. Meanwhile, the rest of COG had reformed under the leadership of Wendy Kohler as the National Sexual Gender Identification Council, or NSGIC. Though... 
The only thing this group managed to get done was a one-day conference held at the Glide Memorial Church. Both groups having fallen apart, a new group emerged that brought together many activists in the Tenderloin, the National Transsexual Counseling Unit, where Wendy Kohler served as its first director. The group proved more successful thanks to funding from FTM millionaire Reed Erickson, who I covered extensively in a previous episode of OFTV last year. As you'll remember, the person in charge of the EEF was Zelda Supley, a former nudist colony owner. When Supley heard of Cog and Cats, she got in touch with Wendy Kohler, who, according to Mayerowitz, was 27 years old at the time. Through the EEF, Supley started funding Kohler and Blackstone. Kohler was given an office paid for by the EEF, sharing a building with two homophile organizations, the very well-known Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Belitis, the latter of which famously had trans women members such as Beth Elliott, um, which I hope to explore in a future episode. Her organization became the National Transsexual Counseling Unit, or NTCU. Kohler began hosting a bi-weekly radio program and lobbying doctors to start a formal gender identity clinic in San Francisco. In 1969, Robert Martin, the only FTM member of COG, fell to his death from the window of a YMCA. Whether by suicide, accident, or murder, I'm uncertain. Kohler stayed on as director of the NTCU until 1971, and she was replaced by other trans women who continued the organization along Blackstone and provided services both in their office and by mail. Primarily what they provided, like the EEF who founded them, were referrals to sympathetic doctors transition advice, active listening, and workshops for college classes studying transsexuality. Essentially the same thing that today's trans organizations do. Suzanne Cook, who had already been involved in Students for a Democratic Society, the SDS, also known as the organization which birthed the Weathermen, and had also been involved in the women's movement, eventually took over leadership of the NTCU, She places herself as part of a second wave of transsexual activists, a group of activists who, while still engaging in some forms of sex work, considered themselves more removed from the lives of street queens. This second wave was interested in fusing the transsexual politics of COG, which had been inspired by civil rights, but aimed at presenting a more respectable middle-class face to the world, with radical feminism and other 70s political ideologies. It's interesting to note these contradictions here. Like, while COG was made up of street sex workers, their work attempted to portray themselves as rightfully being middle class and respectable. Whereas Cook's second wave so removed from the lives of street queens that she describes herself as being, quote, scared of the queens because the few I had met in jail were very rough. Yet, they were politically invested in moving away from middle-class respectability. 
By 1973, Cook would move on and be replaced by Leslie St. Clair and Wendy Davidson, who changed the name of the organization to the Transsexual Counseling Service and sought to depathologize transsexuality for the first time, moving away from the medical model pushed by Harry Benjamin's The Transsexual Phenomenon and the Reed Erickson-funded gender identity clinics that had grown up around it. Part of their effort to distinguish themselves from the medical model was to use only a single S in transsexual, a spelling that continues to be used intermittently to this day. Davidson would go on to found several trans-run medical clinics that had a by-us-for-us mentality and referred patients to a Dr. John Ronald Brown who, according to Meyerowitz, offered, quote, cut-rate surgery on demand. Other transsexual activist groups sprang up in the wake of these events, including Angela Douglas's Transsexual Activist Organization, or TAO, as well as actions by Reverend Ray Brochiers through the Gay Activist Alliance, who led picket lines when 33 drag queens were evicted from a Tenderloin hotel in 1973. While COG was short-lived, this group of street queens, who predate the founding of street transvestite action revolutionaries, have been almost entirely forgotten, receiving only two pages each in Stryker's and Meyerowitz's trans history books. But from their efforts sprang half a dozen other groups and direct actions that continued to fight for trans rights well into the 1970s. What became of Louise and Wendy Kohler is unknown, at least to me, but they and the 15 other members of COG, including trans man Robert Martin, certainly inspire me to believe in the power of activism. And... As we face increasingly bleak political days ahead, I hope their story will inspire you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. I am particularly indebted to the work of Susan Stryker and Joanne Meyerowitz, whose breadcrumb trail led me to COG. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan and Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.
Oh, oh, oh.